are in the book of Ruth. If you do not know where that is, uh, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you can turn it to page 222. Now, um, Barbara Crenn-Savage, uh, she really didn't like clams that much or clam dishes, but there was one particular dish that she had a craving for. It was December 2015. It was blizzarding outside, but Barbara knew that she just had to have Clams Casino. I love Clams Casino. That's a great dish. So what does she do? Well, she jumps into her car and she braves the elements, goes out to the seaside fish market, and returns home with four dozen clams, quahog clams at that. She hands the quahogs over to her husband, Ted, and she sets him to work. He starts shucking away. As he's making his way through the clams, there was a particular clam that just didn't look right to him. It was a funky color. He asked himself, is that thing dead? Now, if any of you have ever had seafood poisoning, you know that you do not want to eat a piece of seafood that is not good, that has spoiled. So he had a moment of decision in his brain. He said, do I open this up or do I leave it closed? Well, Ted decided that he would open up the clam. And on opening it, as Ted sifted through the clam, he noticed this little tiny object, but it never occurred to him that it could be a, a pearl because, he thought, never heard of pearls growing in clams before. So he scraped the contents onto a plate and he was ready to throw it away when Barbara walked into the room and she said, let me see that thing. It might be a pearl. And it was. It was an extravagant, rare, beautiful pearl. It turns out that cohags, one in every 100,000, do produce pearls. It also turns out that one out of 20 of those pearls are gem quality pearls. And this one took the cake. It was brilliantly purple, perfectly round the size of a large pea, a one in two million chance that they had just stumbled upon. Indeed, uh, this pearl, while it's almost impossible to measure its worth, was valued at, in some people's minds, somewhere in the neighborhood of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you imagine that? You have a craving? You go out, you get some clams, and you find something worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, when I think of this story with the Kren Savages, I can't help but think about the life of Ruth, the mother of Jesus that we're looking at this morning. You have an apparently dead clam. You have a decision to stick with it. You have a priceless pearl that is found. You see, that to me is the book of Ruth in a nutshell. Now, Traditionally, if I was to handle this book of the Bible, I would want at least four sermons with it. Uh, but we don't have that luxury this morning. We're going to be dealing with it in one sermon. But sometimes it's good to get a big picture overview of a book of the Bible so that we, we trace the major themes and understand the direction of it. And it's a particularly beautiful story when we consider the theme of Christmas. Ruth begins in Ruth chapter 1 on a note of tragedy. Uh, maybe you have 
at some point or another asked yourself the question, where is God? Or, or some form of that question. Why is God allowing? And, and you just insert whatever your situation is, circumstance is, to happen. And I think this is a particularly important question to be dealing with around Christmas time because I know plenty of us quietly undergo some form of uh, mental tragedy at this season where something has happened in our life and we come to the Christmas season and it's meant to be a time of joy and festivity and family and friendliness and all of those good things, but we're dealing with some form of suffering. Some kind of tragedy. And these are real questions. They're questions that Christians should not gloss over, that we should avoid, you know, providing things like stock, simplistic, cliche, platitudinal answers to. Real questions that the Bible deals with. You know, it's interesting when you look at the book of Ruth that Ruth is, in fact, not the main character. Did you know that? As you trace the story, the, the perspective of the book of Ruth is actually mostly the perspective of the mother-in-law, Naomi, who has undergone a, or undergoes a significant transformation. She's like, if you want to compare her to another character in the Bible, she's like the female Job. She suffers. She wrestles with questions. She's asking, why is God allowing and then as the story unfolds, she finds hope. She finds a more complete faith than she had before she went through suffering. I think of Psalm 42.7 as I think of Naomi's story, and it, it puts it into context for me. The psalmist who is going through suffering says, I hear the, the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. What powerful imagery when you think about suffering and how it hits you in waves. I don't know if you've ever been caught in the cycle of waves where a surge comes forward and it sweeps you under and, and you are fighting your way to the surface, gra uh, gasping for your breath, only then to have another wave come and then another wave come. And you're asking yourself the question, when am I going to capture my breath again? Well, suffering at times can feel like that. It can hit you in waves, in sequences, and, and that's what happens to Naomi in this book. In fact, three waves hit her over the course of ten years. The first is famine. The story opens up with Elimelech making a decision to take his family to Moab. Now, we see that word famine as Western American Christians. You don't get the rising of panic in your heart as someone who's actually gone through times of hunger. I think of a mother, a Somalian mother who had to face true famine. She willingly walked 10 days over hot, dusty roads to reach UNICEF a clinic in Wajid town. Because back home, two of her six children lay in graves victims of famine, and uh, she carried with her a child who was so emaciated that the child couldn't even nurse at the, baby, uh, the mother's breast and needed immediate medical attention. 
You see, when the ground cracks, when there's no more food, you would do just about anything to save one of your children. And that's why Elimelech took his family and they went to Moab. And you get an understanding of the severity of the famine when you hear the name of the two sons. Malon means to be weak. Kilion means to be frail. Naomi is barely catching her breath from wave number one when she's hit by wave two. Elimelech dies. To lose a husband in the ancient world was to lose one's livelihood, protection, security, even status. There was a practice in India. You know, just to put this again into perspective, most of history in most places in the world, widowhood was uh, considered such a state of destitution that it was almost unthinkable for someone to come back from it. In India, there was a practice called sarti, where when a husband died, they would burn the body on a funeral pyre. And it was an expectation that the widow would throw herself upon the fire because she had no status, no hope for security. Fortunately, they've changed that practice. But again, it just gives you an idea of how severe uh, these circumstances were for Naomi. Wave number three, the third and final wave, leaves Naomi as good as dead. Verse five tells us that Malon Kilian died so that the widow was left with her two sons and her husband. You know, think of it like this, end of story, no hope, no coming back from this situation. Those would have been the thoughts running through Naomi's mind as she picks up what little she has, moves from, Ma- uh, from Moab and heads back to Bethlehem. She was like that clam that looks spoiled, dead. Don't touch it. Don't bother it. Just leave it alone. And with each step towards Bethlehem, her mind is racing between bereavement and and shaky thoughts about faith in her own daughters-in-law. Verse 11 to 13, you see her get realistic with the girls. She tells them to go home. It's going to be better for you if you go home. Just leave me to my own destitution. There still might be a chance for you. Well, Orpah did the logical thing. She saw a dead clam and she discarded it. The text says that she kissed her mother-in-law and returned home. But Ruth, this mother of Jesus that we're talking about this morning, somewhere along the way as she watched Naomi and Elimelech in this family, had had undergone a quiet revolution in her heart. She'd seen something about Naomi's God. She started to believe that this God could actually be a pearl maker. He could take situations that were bleak, hopeless, helpless, like their situation, and he could produce radical beauty. Essentially, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, let me see that. It might be a pearl. And that's where you get that beautiful commitment that Ruth makes. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I encourage you to go back and read this on your own. This is probably one of the most beautiful commitments, declarations of faith that we see in all the Bible. Ruth says this, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I love that. Somewhere along the way, this is the type of statement that a person makes who has in their heart grasped the the trueness of the character and nature of the living God. You don't say things like this if you don't understand who he is. Essentially what Ruth is doing here in this statement is she is unhitching her wagging from the god Shamash, who was the Moabite god that she had grown up with and and heard about her entire life. And she's taking her wagging and she's hitching it to the god who she's just watched take Naomi through famine and widowhood and the loss of her sons because what her distant son would say later on She believed that he was the type of God that could produce pearls out of this misery. Isn't that amazing that she would do such a thing? And Naomi is left speechless after this. She doesn't have anything to say, so they return back to Bethlehem. Now we pick up in chapter 2. They come to Bethlehem and they still face pretty dire circumstances. I mean, You come back to a town, you have nothing materially, you have no hopes of providing food for yourself or your family. There was a provision in the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 19. It says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This practice was called gleaning, and um, as a practice, you know, you can kind of understand God's intention here, can't you? I want you to feed the poor. I want you to take care of people in destitution. But as with any system, there is a way that you can uh, situate things so that the system breaks down. I mean, consider gleaning. Uh, how much of the edges of the field does God want me to leave for people? And God said, yeah, that we should leave things on the ground and we should let people pick things up after us, but he never said how careful we could be on that first pass. You see uh, what could happen here with a system like this? The letter of the law says, let them glean, but the spirit of the law was, I want you to feed people who are poor. And so the world that Ruth was stepping out into when she was going to glean was a place where people were obeying the law but missing its heart. Gleaning could be dangerous. People mistreated. Women victimized. Gleaners becoming cutthroats because you'd go out and work all day and it would be hard labor, and sometimes you'd come home with not even enough to feed yourself or another person for that matter. So knowing this, let's take a look at Boaz. Um, 2.1 tells us that he's a worthy man, and this idea encompasses attributes such as strength and wealth, honor, reputation, competence, energy. 
He's a well-to-do person. He's respectable in society. And when you think about Boaz, I want you to think of power dynamic for a minute. He holds all the cards. Ruth holds none of the cards. What does he do with his power? Well, he first he comes up to Ruth and he's told that she's a Moabitess from Moab by his workers. The idea there is, just in case you missed the memo, Boaz, she's a foreigner and you have no obligation to her. He calls her over and he says, Listen, my daughter, do not glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young man not to touch you? Now, the, the question that you should be asking yourself as Boaz is saying this, is this kind of standard hospitality? Is this what he should be doing uh, for Ruth under the obligation of the law? And I think the, uh, the, the simple answer to that question is no. In fact, so much so that Ruth is shocked in 2.10. She says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She can't understand why Boaz would go out of his way to do such a nice thing for her. Now here's an interesting little tidbit of information. I think that Boaz had a special place in his heart for women like Ruth. You know Why? Well, we learn in the Bible that Boaz's mother was Rahab. I wonder what kind of things were impressed upon the young man's heart as he heard the story of Rahab and the way that God had rescued her from the city of Jericho and brought her into the household, the family of God. But he also noticed something deep about Ruth's character. In verse 11, he said, I understand all of you done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And then he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come. And so Ruth comes home with a lot of grain. It is Guinness Book record grain. If there was a record for the most gleaning that has ever taken place in human history, Ruth just accomplished that. She comes home with 29 pounds of grain. Just to put that in perspective, that's about a half month's wages for a normal day laborer. She comes home, and now you hear the wonder in Naomi's voice, where did you glean today? And where have you worked Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth tells her about Boaz, and then Naomi responds, May the Lord bless him. He is showing his kindness to us um, as well as to your dead husband. The man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. Now, that word redeemer The Old Testament places a great emphasis on the Redeemer. The Hebrew is the word goel. John MacArthur explains the goel was a relative who came to the rescue. Uh, The word goel includes the idea of redemption 
or deliverance. So another way you'll see them referred to in the Bible is a kinsman redeemer. And they could come along into a person's life and do a great deal of good for them. They could restore their honor and their reputation and even their inheritance in the society. So in the case of Naomi and Ruth, this Goel could come along and revive the family lineage of Elimelech. But at cost to himself, of course, he would have to marry Ruth. He would have to raise a son for Ruth. And that son would take not on the name of Boaz, but the name of Elimelech. So it was sacrificial. You see, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is like this. He is a better Boaz. He is a better kinsman redeemer. He became our human brother. He brought us back from the bondage of evil. He redeemed our lives from death, and he ultimately returned to us that which we had lost because of our sin. See how powerful this Goel character was in the life of a person, the need of it? So Naomi recognizes this, and she tells Ruth that she should keep going back to this field. It would be very important for you, Ruth, to return and uh, to get to know Boaz a little better. Let's now make our way into chapter 3. Seven weeks have passed. Seven weeks of Ruth going back to the field. Harvest is now complete. They're coming now into this season called threshing where they beat the grain out and separate it out. And, you know, things, you know, in the marriage world are moving very slowly. There's no movement on the part of Boaz. I think although he'd taken a keen interest in Ruth, it didn't seem to enter his mind to pursue the Goel role with her. And by his own testimony in Ruth 3.10, he didn't consider himself an option for her. He's kind of a humble guy. It made me think of this story, this cold feet that Boaz is experiencing. There was a short story, and essentially the premise of the story was this. Uh, A bride had done all of the planning, Um, organized everything for her wedding, which was about to take place the next day. And her fiancé came to the house and knocked on the door, and he had an ashen look on his face, and he was stumbling over his words. And finally, he just came out with it and said, "I, I can't go through with this tomorrow. I mean, I've thought through all the details and uh, all the ways that things could go wrong and all the safety and security of my life. It's just, I, don't, I can't do it. I, I can't marry you. So the bride, quite uh, surprisingly to him, takes it pretty well. and She says, that's okay. But here's what I want you to do. Let me save a little face. You go stand at the altar and I'll stand you up. You put on your best dejected face I'll tell people that I just couldn't make it. So he was very happy with that proposition. The wedding day begins. He goes and stands at the altar with the preacher and with his best man, and the music strikes up, and the bridal march begins, and then the doors fly open, and everyone, including the groom, looks to the back door waiting for the bride. And what happens? Well, she comes walking through that door looking glorious and as beautiful as ever. (laughs) 
confidently resting in her father's arms in the groom, he doesn't say a word other than, I do. (laughs) They didn't say anything about what had happened until sometime later in the honeymoon. The upshot of it was this. She knew him better than he knew him. He was scared. He had basically thought through every implication and implicated himself out of the marriage. But she also knew that if he ran away from this, he would regret it for the rest of his life. And so she duped him. And he had to marry her. Naomi concocts a similar plan for Ruth. Essentially, she tells her to Dress up like you mean it. Go to the threshing floor and lay at the man's feet. Now, some scholars have said, oh, this is scandalous. Uh, Naomi's trying to entrap Boaz in this situation so that he has to marry Ruth. But i got to tell you, when you look at the character of Naomi and Ruth, do you really think that this is something they would do? No. No, I think what Naomi is getting at here, she doesn't want to entrap him. She's just telling Ruth to give him a not-so-subtle hint that he needs to put a ring on that finger. And so verse 7 tells us that Ruth came softly and Boaz is dog-tired. He's been working at the threshing floor. They've celebrated a little bit. He falls into a deep sleep. He wakes up in the middle of the night and exclaims, Who are you when there's a form laying at his feet? And Ruth takes Naomi's advice a step further. Instead of just sitting there and quietly waiting for him to kind of get the memo, she proposes to him. Verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And instead of being offended that Ruth proposed to him, Boaz sees the proposal as a great kindness. Look at verses 10 and 11. May the Lord bless you. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men. And you know what I find remarkable about Boaz is there in verse 11, he says, I will do for you all that you ask for all of my fellow townsmen know. In the ESV text, it is, you are a worthy woman. The actual Hebrew of that word is a man of valor. You might recall that Harry was talking about the mighty men of David, the men of valor, the men of reputation and, and respectability. Well, it's the same word that Boaz uses for Ruth, the same word that Ruth 2.1 uses of Boaz. He sees her as strong, honorable, reputable, competent, action-oriented. She is in no way his inferior, but in every way his equal. Have you ever heard the, the tired criticism that the Bible looks to hold peop- uh, women in particular back. That it, you know, people are asking the question, is God good for women? Does God actually find women valuable? Well, i got to tell you, I know of no other ancient text that in this culture, in this day and age, that did not treat women as marginal, as slave-like. And the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 sets women up as equals with men right from the very beginning. 
It says in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Boaz was not looking at someone that he was rescuing, a helpless dame or something of that nature. He viewed her as a competent equal to him. Wow. So in chapter 4, he goes right to work to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Now, I wish we had time to deal with chapter 4. I love the negotiations of the Bible. They are so good. And Boaz, let's just say this, he is a boss when he negotiates in this chapter. Uh, He sets up Elimelech's closer relative to disavow his rights. He works him like it is his job. And in the end, the story resolves with blessing, marriage, and the birth of the son. But let's, let's just unpack a couple of lessons that we learn from this story. I think there are two important lessons. There's more, but two that we will deal with as we consider Ruth, this mother of Jesus. The first lesson has to do with this word that's repeated three times in the text. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that you would pronounce chesed. Chesed. Uh, Ruth 8, 1, 8. May the Lord deal chesed with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 2.20. May he be blessed by the Lord whose chesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. 3.10. You have made this last chesed greater than the first. It's interesting when words are translated from one language to another. Sometimes they just don't fare well as they make the journey over. I heard of an issue a translator was having in a certain culture where he was trying to convey the idea of a lamb to this culture, but they had never seen a lamb before. They had no idea what a lamb was. And so he, he looked for a parallel animal, something that would be equivalent to a lamb to them, and he came up with the notion of a llama. Now, here's the thing about Llamas, while they are four-legged, woolly, and they eat grass, they are a poor match for a sheep because those darn things are rascals. They spit at you, they bite, they hit you with their neck. So just imagine this idea being crossing over. You don't get the idea of a defenseless little lamb being sacrificed, right? Well, in the same way, translator face a dilemma translating this Hebrew word chesed. Uh, there really isn't an English uh, equivalent to capture the idea, so we use all kinds of different words like kindness and loyal love and loving kindness and steadfast love. But the, all of those things come up to the meaning, but they just fall short of actually capturing what it means uh, in her monumental book. I thought it was fabulous. Carolyn Custis James probably provides one of the best definitions I've heard of hesed. She said, hesed is a strong Hebrew word that sums up the ideal lifestyle for God's people. It's the way God intended for human beings to live together from the beginning. The love your neighbor as yourself brand of living, an active, selfless, sacrificial caring for one another that goes against the grain of the fallen nature. Two parties are involved. 
someone in desperate need, and a second person who possesses the power and resources to make a difference. Hesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by a bone-deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or ask of them. They have the freedom to act, or get this, walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation. Yet they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. That's what makes this story special. Well, the book does not come out and say, here's the definition of hesed. We like that, don't we? We want definitions. We want the full scope and meaning of things. Well, Hebrews didn't think like that. They wanted pictures. So Ruth paints a portrait of Hesed. Why? Because Hesed is not something that you think. It's not something that you feel. It's something you do. Now you're probably asking the question, well, how do I know if I'm demonstrating Hesed? And I got to tell you, a lot of these answers are always the same way. Number one, you know it when you see it. I cannot give you a list of if you do this, 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 now you are doing hesed. And the other thing is this. If it didn't cost you much or require you to go above and beyond the ordinary, then you're probably not in the ballpark. You're somewhere else. Christmas is about hesed. Because God loves us so much, the Bible says he, what, sent his one and only Son. And if God is like that, if God is a hesed giving God to his people, then that means that Christians should be living out hesed as our modus operandi. It should be what we do. It should be what we are about. If the God of the universe who doesn't need anything, who has been offended by humankind, who created a glorious creation only to have that creation scorned by those that he made, stepped out into eternity and became a baby? What do you think he wants us to do? He wants us to live the Hesed lifestyle. One more implication. We also learn about God's providence. What is providence? Well, it is a theological label that the church has historically given to describe how God governs the world. He's at work behind the scenes. He's keeping things moving in the direction so that it would be for the ultimate good of you and for the world. For those who have come to know him and love him is how the Bible says it. Now you look at Naomi and Ruth's situation from the ground level and you think to yourself, how could anything good come from that? Ten years of suffering, famine, watching your boys grow up, being malnourished to the point that they look weak and frail in frame. Losing your husband, losing then your son, something that no one in the world should have to experience. You should never have to experience, as a parent, losing one of your children. That's not right. 
It's not normal. It's not the normal course of things. So how does God bring good about in that? But his invisible hand of providence is showing Hesed already from the start of the story. Most notably, in the person of Ruth, in Naomi's life. Carolyn Custis James says this, More often than not, when we dust for the fingerprints of God, what are the fingerprints of God? They're those moments where you say very clearly, you see God has been involved in the situation. We come up with the prints of one of his image bearers. More often than not, God shows his providence to you by one of his loving, kind, Hesed demonstrating people. Ruth 4, 14, 15. The women of Bethlehem, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth. Now let's consider the full picture. What if Naomi didn't go through suffering? Well, she never would have been to Moab. She never would have met Ruth. Ruth never would have returned back to Bethlehem with her and came into that revolutionary relationship with God. Boaz and Ruth never would have met. They never would have had a son. Then there wouldn't be what? Christmas, that's right. Ruth 4.17, they had a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's God's providence that can turn tragedy into hope. Misery into surpassing joy, loss into gain, defeat into salvation. See, friends, God's providence is continually at work all through the Bible as he is bringing about events to bring Jesus into the world. I mean, think about all of the steps that had to be perfectly orchestrated. And we're even seeing this through the mothers of Jesus, right? Rahab the prostitute had to be rescued from Jericho. And she had to have a son named Boaz who would have a special place in his heart for foreigners. Ruth, the Moabite, had to declare faith in God and she had to commit herself to showing Hesed to Naomi. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, had to face shame but then God would have to work his providence and redemptive qualities in her life to bring her out of the ashes of shame so that she would be in a committed marriage with David, have a son named Solomon, who would eventually, again, bring about the birth of Jesus. And as we're going to see tomorrow, Mary had to be a virgin from the line of David. How is all this possible? I mean, if you, if you remove God out of the equation, there is no Christmas. It just doesn't happen. But the Bible puts it very simply. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. When the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law so that 
he could adopt us as his very own children. That's why Jesus came. He came to extend you a pearl of great price, his life, that you would have eternal life, peace with God, adoption in God's family. And think about this, too. What steps did God have to bring about for you to be here today, to be sitting in this room, hearing this message about Jesus? Surely God's providence is at work in your life. Surely he is calling you to trust in his son, Jesus. Would you bow your heads with